Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because you did, by this deed... You have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, for your word. We pray that you would give us understanding of it. And Father, we pray that we would learn what is necessary for our hearts and our minds and our souls from this passage that we would be sobered by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So anybody who's named Nathan and has ch- or has children named Nathan, this is why you would name your child Nathan. This passage. What a, what a glorious work that the prophet was called to do by God here. 
A little bit of review as we come into this passage again. David, what's recounted in the previous chapter is David's adultery, David's murder, and all the corresponding temptations and sins that preceded and led to those sins. So all of those are laid out there for them. And Bathsheba also commits adultery with David. And the law would demand that both of them be punished by death. That's what the law would demand of them if the law were applied to them in, um, in uh, a one-to-one correspondence here. And then the very final thing we read in chapter 11 is this statement. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it is shortly after that that the Nathan, the prophet, enters in. Of course, you know that the chapter breaks and your Bibles are arbitrary, set there by some guy in the, I don't know, 19th century or something. Maybe it was earlier than that. But um, this chapter 11 would flow right into chapter 12. And so it seems that um, Nathan the prophet comes mercifully quickly to, uh, to David. But we don't know if time elapsed there or not. <clears throat> Notice, first of all, that it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is not Nathan observing the king's behavior and going on his own. This is, this is prophetic activity here. This is God moving His prophet to speak to, speak to power, which is what all the prophets do, right? They remind the kings and those in authority that there is a higher authority, and that's the Lord God Almighty. And so Nathan <clears throat> is sent by Yahweh to David, and already we can... You know, in reflecting on this passage, my mind was taken back to, to Saul. Saul who wouldn't heed the voice of the prophets and who, after Samuel was out of the picture, um, stopped listening to the Lord, right? Stopped hearing from the prophets. And yet here, God is merciful to David in sending to him a prophet who would rebuke him. It's the mercy of God for us today to have prophets that will speak to prick our consciences, isn't it? It's painful. It's painful at times, but it's merciful. There have been times, I'm sure, that you can recount in your life where somebody, God sent you a prophet, so to speak, and somebody spoke into your life and it was painful, but it yielded fruit, right? God used that sort of discipline to... Um, to properly wound your conscience so that you would cry out to him. And, um, and yet, right here, everything's hanging in the balance, right? <clears throat> David, is, David desires more than anything right now. If you reflect on your own conscience when you've committed great sin, David wants to th- keep things under wraps. He wants to keep all of his sins hidden. The last thing, he, he would rather die than have his sins exposed at this point. Calvin, reflecting on that, said, if one had given David what he desired, it is certain that he would have wanted his, 
mange scraped away, but rather he would have preferred to have been spared. Instead, God, procuring his salvation, sent something far from pleasant to David that could not flatter his ears. So God didn't send to him a flatterer. God did not send to him the sort of flattering false assurance that we peddle in today so easily, the cheap grace that we so easily get caught up in, the sin so that grace may abound sort of statements that, that um, <clears throat> are often applied to terrible situations. You think of many pastors and leaders in the church who have, who have committed terrible sins and then committed the worst sin afterwards of just speaking of God's grace and how their sins had been forgiven. And they're back in the pulpit leading their churches. And yet here David, David is not flattered, though he, I, I, looking at the Proverbs, you learn a lot in the Proverbs about how to approach, um, how to approach somebody if you're going to rebuke them. Right, and um, one of them, one of the proverbs is better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Open rebuke is better than love concealed. And yet here, Nathan really comes to David gently at first using a parable. And yet, obviously, the Lord speaks through the prophet Nathan later very explicitly. And so we receive, we, David, Nathan goes to David and tells him this, this parable, the city. And, and obviously we could, you can make a, a correspondence between the, the different elements of the story. David is the rich man, Uriah is the poor man, and the, the flocks or the ewe is, is Uriah's wife and... and um, He's telling David's story. He's telling what has happened just recently in David's life. And, and it has the proper effect. I think it has the effect that Nathan was shooting for. Anyway, there, was, there were two rich men in one city, the one rich and the other poor, and the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he brought, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now that's way over the top, right? That is way over the top. This is a ewe lamb, and um, yet what we take from it is that there was, he, he really loved this ewe lamb, that he cared for this ewe lamb. And uh, that last statement, he was, or uh, the, the lamb was like a daughter to him, is meant to raise up the sympathy. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his flock, his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, the rich man had many flocks, right? How many wives does David have at this point? Eighteen like that concubines wives he's got a flock of wives right he has many women around him and yet now he he uh, is not limiting himself to what he has but must take from Uriah 
And that's what we're all thinking because we know the beginning from the end. But think of David in this. Think of David sitting there and then his response. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. There were times in the law that you were only supposed to, that restoration was two times what you had taken, but there were also other times when it was fourfold restitution laid out by the law. And so David is, 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 uh, speaking intensely here, not only must he make restitution, but that man deserves to die, he says. It seems like David still has a conscience, right? I mean, his conscience has had a lot to bear recently. Remember, and one of the statements I made last time is it seemed, you know, when, when you get to the point of... of looking at a woman, inquiring after her, taking her, trying to then cover up the adultery by getting the husband drunk so that he'll go lie with his wife. But then that not working, so involving the commander of your troops to come and kill Uriah by um, withholding um, protection around him. And that means the enemies of God would be killing his own man by his own uh, permission. That's a lot to bear on a conscience. It's a lot of weight on a conscience. And remember, after it all happens, you know, David says to that messenger, um, the sword devours one as well as another. You know, war kills. Seems like his conscience is dead at that point, but this story of Nathan shows us that his conscience still has some proper response. Notice what it says in verse 6. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. He had no compassion. What's compassion? You guys know what compassion is, children? Did somebody say? What? Pity. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were beatboxing the heck there. <laughs> Pity, yes, that's part of compassion. Um, love, compa- love and pity and uh, a mind to help, right? That's all a part of compassion. Um, and, and David, <clears throat> David rebukes the man in the parable because he didn't have compassion. He had taken that man's ewe lamb and slaughtered it when he had his own that he could have slaughtered. And, and so David recognizes that what that man lacks is compassion, but that's precisely what David had lacked in spades. I mean, way beyond this parable's killing of a ewe lamb, David has taken a man's wife and then killed that man. David had no compassion on Uriah, and he was a much more, and that's a, he's much more worthy to, to have the compassion of, of David. <clears throat> of course, then we come down to verse 7, Nathan 
you know, D- David is there fuming, he's angry, um, whether or not he believed this was a parable or an actual situation, and he as king was going to enter into it and make things right, I don't know, but, but Nathan then reveals to him the purpose of this parable. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. First thing that occurs to me when we we think of that is Nathan is not afraid of the king. Nathan's not afraid of the king. He's not even afraid of the king knowing what the king has recently done. He's not a respecter of persons, right? He goes after the king because he's a prophet sent by God. And he has to announce what the Lord has given him to announce. So he's not afraid of the king. He's no respecter of persons. And further, we, we learn <clears throat> here of the great blessings that God has given to David. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now speaking God's words directly, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added many more to you, many more things like these. Right? The the blessings that God has brought to, to David have been Intense. I gave you kingship. I gave you deliverances from Saul. I gave you his house. I gave you his wives to care for. I gave you Israel. I gave you Judah. I would have added even more than all those things. But you instead have despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So now directly addressing the sins committed, this is the indictment. This is the pronouncement of guilt of King David, the naming of those sins. You despise the word of the Lord, the sword, and then it says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. So the, this, is, this is a pronouncement of the punishment. It's the indictment against him struck down Uriah, you have taken his wife, you've killed him by the hand of your enemy. What's bad about this death is it's, it would have been better if David had killed him himself, but instead he allows God's enemies to take out Uriah. That's why it mentions the sword of Ammon. And so, um, allowing the enemies to take this man. And then it summarizes all of all of his sin by saying, you have despised the word, you have despised God. <clears throat> right? You have despised the word of the Lord.
And David is quietly, it seems, taking all of this in. This is one of those moments for David when his sin is so perfectly brought out into the open that there's nothing he can say. Right? He's busted. And we've all been in a situation like that where suddenly the sins that we thought we had kept so hidden and so under wraps become revealed to our children, to our wife, to friends, whatever it may be. And there's, it's hard to speak in those moments. It's hard, to, uh, it's hard to even respond. So David is taking this and think of the punishments that are doled out here. The sword will not depart from your house. Your house now is going to be filled with violence. And that's a terrible, terrible, terrible judgment. Right? You think it's difficult when siblings are bickering with one another continuously. Think about if they are killing one another. What happens in David's household? The brothers kill each other. Right? Solomon kills Adonijah and Absalom kills... Who does Absalom kill? not coming. Well, he, he does. He does mess with his own father, right? <clears throat> Evil will rise up from within your own family. Your wives will commit adultery in broad daylight. What you did in secret is going to be done to you in open. In the open. And um, don't forget that Absalom takes David's wives. And so this, this is not just um, other men are going to take your wives. This is going to be incestuous. Incest revealed when Absalom takes David's wives. And so all of this is laid out there and we begin to think like um, we begin to think like Cain, man, the punishment is too great for me to bear, don't we? Our sense of justice starts getting all out of whack. And um, that's because I don't think we're thinking about this properly. We'll come back to that in a second. <clears throat> David responds and wonderfully, graciously, by God's blessing, he simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against Yahweh. He doesn't try to back out. He doesn't try to give excuses, right? He's not trying to continue the cover-up. He knows everything is out. He knows that the prophet has spoken. He has, he, he, has been rebuked, and as another of the Proverbs says, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And so David is no fool. He's a man who still fears the Lord, and he receives this rebuke, and it goes deeply into him. Now how deeply? Well, turn to Psalm 51. 
How deeply does this rebuke go into him? When did he write this psalm? Was it the day after? Was it the hour after? Was it months after as he reflected and continued to repent before the Lord? We don't know. But Psalm 51, for the choir director, is Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So all we get in 2 Samuel is I've sinned against the Lord, but then we get Psalm 51 that fills out just exactly what's going on in the heart of David. So just listen to this and remember the context. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your mercy or your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, there's David accepting the judgments of the Lord. There's David announcing that, that whatever God may do with him, God may do with him. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Think of Saul. Think of Saul when you read this. Right? Saul was cast away from the presence of God because of his sin. And David knows that. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Some moment on that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, the statement that God does not delight in sacrifices. Of course, God commanded sacrifices. And in some sense, sacrifices are cheap and easy. Sacrifices would be the sort of letter of the law to bring restitution to the situation. Lord, how many, how many bulls do you want me to offer for my sins? Okay, let's do that. The bulls are offered, we're good. It'd be like negotiating his righteousness before God. And yet, David says, no, no, no. The sacrifices of God is a broken and a contrite heart before him. To be undone, to feel the sickness of your sin, to feel 
the weight of it, right? And to, in a sense, despise yourself in the context of God's hatred of sin and our own love for it. So a broken and a contrite heart. God will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. That's an infrequent thing. When it comes to repentance, sometimes repentance can be so mechanical. And, and as, a, as a pastor and as an elder for, for 20 years, sometimes you have to hold people's hands to bring them through difficult pastoral care situations. And you really have to lay out stages for their repentance. But you're praying the whole time, God, give them a broken and contrite heart. Give them repentance from the Spirit, not just, not just a, a, a manual sort of obedience to meet the steps that we're asking. All of those steps, we hope, as elders, are for the purpose of, of breaking somebody's heart before God so that they cry out and see their need of Jesus Christ. Again, David's response is not like Cain's at all, right? My punishment is too great to bear. David's response is, you've broken my bones, you have punished me, and you are just, O oh God. And he's no hypocrite. His repentance is full. So we go back to 2 Samuel 12. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then we insert all the, the weight of Psalm 51. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, so before we get to the however, we can't quickly, we can't quickly pass by this statement. The Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. For some of us who like to work off our sins, who still would rather be Roman Catholic than Reformed, that seems too quick. That assurance seems way too quick, doesn't it? I mean, it's just come out. All he said is, I've sinned against the Lord, and Nathan gives him assurance. Nathan says, you're forgiven. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to die. And so, this, we have to feel the full weight of this. Some of you have committed sins in your past that you're still trying to atone for. Right? Many, many years ago when you were young, you committed sins that you're still trying to atone for and you, you won't accept that God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. He's really forgiven you. That the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. It's enough merit. It's, it's all you need for those sins to be forgiven to you. And God is pleased to forgive you. Right? Forgiven. 
Yes, you know, remember, you know, remember the magnitude of what David has done here. And the prophet's saying to him, your sins are forgiven. You're not going to die. God's not going to strike you dead. You're not going to die. Have faith in Christ. And when you have faith in Christ, it cleanses you from all your sins. But some of us still look at this and we think that's too cheap, that's too quick. Isn't there some penance that David could do? Right? And that's what the Roman Catholic would come to this passage and would say. There's a certain amount of penance that David has to do in regard to these sins. He's got to say a certain number of prayers. He's got to do a certain number of good works. He's got to make this or that pilgrimage. He's got to do all these things. But we say, no, Jesus Christ's merit is enough. There's no way to add to that. In other words, Jesus Christ has satisfied God the Father in regard to your sins. He really has. He has fully satisfied God regarding your sins. And so we have to feel the weight of that before we go on to the however. If we don't get that part, that this is just stupendous graciousness on the part of God toward David. This is, the, this is stupendous graciousness that was not given to Saul. And that's God's choice. But to David, this, this mercy was given. And, and so that's, that's for those of us who, who have a tendency to want to ref, refuse to accept that God has forgiven our sins and are always trying to work it off. Well, don't, don't dishonor Jesus Christ like that. Don't dishonor his merit. Don't dishonor the, the fullness of the work that he did and the satisfaction that he gave for your sins in their entirety. And so that's why this is wonderful. David's quick admission is followed by quick restoration. There is no room for penance here. There's room for forgiveness. There's no room for penance. There's no room for, for David somehow asserting his merit before God when he has Christ's merit applied to his sins. Christ's merit is enough. Then we come to the however. So, the sins are forgiven. But there's a however. And some people struggle on this side of the equation, right? They've sinned, they've understood the forgiveness of God, and they think that there should be no lingering consequences for any of the sins they've ever committed, and it's unfair that there would be consequences from this. But this punishment that's doled out by God, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, Now that's interesting what that says. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Again, we start to think, what a harsh consequence. Or some of us think, yeah, that's only appropriate. That would do a lot of atoning for my sin if God took the child that was conceived during that sin. That would probably be good. That'd make me feel better. 
But again, we get twisted up. This however is there. And this consequence of his sin, and there are consequences to sins that go that linger on and go beyond the forgiveness of those sins. There are always tentacles to sins, right? There are always consequences to our sins. There are always relationships that are affected. There are always um, <clears throat> there are the sins of the father are visited upon the children, right? There's this this generational um, consequences of sin. Um, but, the, but the punishment is not so that we can atone ourselves for past sins. Oh good, God has taken my child. That makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I've done something profound and suffered enough that God's going to forgive me. No, it's, it's not that way. It's so that we might be humbled and avoid sin in the future. That's why it's there. The, the punishment from our sin pushes forward, not backward. Right? He's forgiven. The prophet has announced that he's forgiven. Right? He's not going to die. And yet, there's consequences so that he might be humbled and not commit the same sin in the future and have to undergo punishments. This is mercy to him to avoid this sin. Do you think that, do you think that having this child die is going to sober him to the sins that he committed and keep him sober so that he does not commit the same sins. That's the glory of of God disciplining us even after he's forgiven us. Right? God disciplines us even after he's forgiven us in Jesus Christ. So Nathan went to his house, the last verse. Does his work. Announces the judgment of God against David. Announces forgiveness to David. Goes home. And then David is left to left to deal with the consequences of his sin. So some applications here from this passage. First one from Calvin. He says, Those who flatter themselves in their vices and give free reign to them have God as their adversary. And yet, they feel nothing of it. The sword is over their neck. But they think that they are very secure. Let us learn, therefore, all the more to subject ourselves voluntarily to all correction. Submit yourself to all correction. Right? We don't see the sword that's over our neck when we're caught in our sins. That's what he's saying. For it is the sole means by which we may seek a meeting with God when we are wounded to the quick and when sadness and anguish are produced that we no longer know where we are until God has made us feel His grace and His mercy. The second, so that's one thing. Be ready for correction. Prepare yourself to receive correction. Children, when your parents correct you, that's God at work in your life for your good. Remember that, okay? It's God at work trying to, trying to get you to see your sins, trying to get you to understand God's forgiveness. So remember that. 
It's no fun for your parents. But if you have a good parent, they do it a lot, even though it's not fun. Second application, don't crave flattery. Flattery is terrible. And you have the need to be flattered. We all want to be flattered. We want to be lied to. That's what flattery is. It's lying to your face to make you feel better. Right? It's just puffing you up. And Nathan did not flatter David at all. He didn't come to the king and and be, you know, um, fill it, fill this with, you know, with, uh, you know, taking away with one hand what he gave with the other. Oh, great king, you know, you, you have deep passions, and we understand that you're a man of deep passions, but you really shouldn't have done that. No, he comes to him. And he, he says to him, you're the man. You're that wretched man. You're the terrible man who, t- who took the ewe lamb and killed it. And so don't crave flattery. Flattery will only lead you down a path to continue in your sins. Whereas rebuke, on the other hand, will, will rescue you, will um, turn you away from your sins. Third, learn to hate the sin which once only pleased you. Right? There's a time when your sins were just exactly what pleased you. And we need to learn how to hate those sins and not let them please us anymore. Fourth, our secret sins become public shame for our loved ones. Think of that. Think of the, the, what this does to David's household. His sons, his sons who did not receive proper discipline from David because David was busy with his wives and concubines, they, they, um, they are not um, great men. They are sinful men. And they end up committing incest and murder. Sexual sins and violence, just as their father had committed but think of that, what, what David tried to do in secret, when it comes out, it becomes his family's shame, right? His family has to deal with this. And you think they, you know, you, you, whenever, whenever I see a, a public scandal with a pastor, my thoughts immediately go to the rest of his family who has to bear the weight of his sin, though they did not commit that sin. It's going to have deeply profound impact upon them, and they're going to be questioned about it, and they're going to be held accountable for it in some weird way. And, and they have to bear public shame for... So that's a reason for you to repent now of any secret sins that you may be committing, because when it comes out, it's going to fall, the burden of it is going to fall on your family. It's going to fall on your family. Five, heed God's messengers or he's going to stop sending them to you. Right, Saul, 
Saul no longer had prophets who would bring him the word. And um, that's because he would not obey. And so unless we obey God's messengers, at a certain point he will stop sending them to us when we disregard them. So heed God's messengers when they come to you. Six, quickly go to God in repentance. Quickly repent. He is gracious. You stewing in your sins is sin. Right? You can't make atonement by stewing. You can't propitiate God. You can't satisfy God by being depressed for six months. After your sins have been revealed. Repent. God is slow to anger and abundant in mercy. He's a good father. He's compassionate. He's kind. Right? He, he desires to see your good. Right? So quickly repent and quickly know the forgiveness of God. Now, there's, there's one last thing I want to mention, but any other, any other applications that anybody wants to mention from this passage? You've probably heard sermons on this passage before. Many sermons. But any others that, that stick out to you that I'm, I've missed? There's one last thing that I want to share, but I want to, I want to wait until anybody has anything else. No? If only David had gone to war... Things would be so different, right? If only David had been about the things that God called him to as the king. Then, then that day would have fallen out differently with Bathsheba, right? If only David had been the sort of man that when he saw, he would have begun despising himself for lusting and turned away and got to work. It would have been wonderful. And there were probably many other days when, for David, it was like that. Right? A man after God's own heart, we have to expect that he honored God and he worshipped God. And so there were some days when it was like that. But not that day. I, I mean, it could be. I don't know, but um, I think I think he's not that. Um, I think he gets nailed by Nathan, and then and then when Nathan says, "You are the man," he's like, "Oh, oh, right." So yeah, I, you know that, but but um, so you're you're thinking that maybe he's feeling guilt and he's speaking out of his guilt there, but uh, who knows? I I don't think so. I think it's more he he's not his conscience is very inactive at that point.
How does that work? I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy that God can use sinful means to bring about his purposes. I mean, that's the question of every page of Scripture, right? Every page of Scripture shows wicked sinners fulfilling God's will, right? What you meant for, for good, you know, for evil, God meant for good. And so that's the glory of the power of God is he, he can accomplish his glorious and holy and perfect will by means that are crooked and wicked and terrible. But that doesn't, that doesn't um, impinge upon God's sovereignty in one bit. So that's what I would say to that. We see that everywhere. You're right. You're exactly right. That God, God brings Solomon, this, this man who would glorify him in many respects, out of this situation. What else? Good, good thoughts, good questions. Forbidden fruit. Yeah. The sin of David is the sin of Adam and Eve. Yeah, it's, that, is this, that is all sin. Sure. Sure. Yeah, and he painfully reminded. That's right. That's right. Yep. Unless we want further consequences, unless we want to add to the weight of the discipline that God's going to bring to us because he loves us, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, want to, I want to read a section of Calvin here because it's an example of the kind of preaching that we never hear today. And I was helped by it, and I think it's, it's worth, worth sharing with you. This comes... He did four sermons on this passage um, between chapter 12, 1, and 15. So there are four sermons in, in uh, what we have recorded anyway. <clears throat> Not record, written down. <laughs> Got to make that clear. Um, and this is just an example of, of preaching we don't hear today because, because we're soft. Right? So here's what Calvin says at one point. I think this is the one. Let me make sure. Yeah. If God did not pardon David without punishing him so severely, what will it be like for us? And so already we want to go redemptive historical and not make this application, right? If God did not pardon David, the man after God's own heart, without punishing him so severely, what will it be like for us? It is certainly true that God preserved him and that this was a special grace, but still, the grace which God bestowed on him 
did not prevent judgment from being mixed with it. On the one hand, note carefully that David was a transgressor of the commandment, you shall not kill. On the other hand, God had to give him such a blow that he would feel it for the rest of his life. Nor was it a simple blow. Rather, it was the same as cutting off an arm or a leg and saying, you shall not die, but you shall lose one of your members. Thus it was with David. The child which he had begotten was soon taken away. Then his own children killed one another, and his house was like a den of thieves. It was not a question merely of shedding human blood. Acts of incest were committed. So the most filthy and rotten things in the world happened there. When we see how David was dealt with, alas, what will it be like for us? Therefore, let us consider walking much more in the fear of God in the future, not provoking Him to anger, so that after He has pardoned us and bestowed His fatherly goodness on us, He will not have to be so severe that there is nothing for us to do but gnash our teeth. Right? If God punished David like this, and David was a godly man, and we're just average sinners, right? Just like David, also. Then... We should fear God. We should fear the consequences of our sin. We should really fear that. We should fear that God will discipline us. Right? When we commit sin. He is a loving Father. He forgives sins. He wants us to come to Him in repentance. But He will not leave us alone when we repent. Because He wants better for us in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder. We thank you that you've sobered us. Oh God, give us repentance for those sins that so easily entangle us. Give us repentance for the sins of lust. Give us repentance for the murders that we commit in our heart. Give us repentance for those, those sins that we delight in now because we we have not repented enough to even despise them. And Lord, we, we thank You that You work through the mouths of prophets in our lives. We thank You for Your kindness that leads us to repentance. And Father, we do thank You for the ongoing discipline that You bring to us because You want us to avoid the sins that have brought us so much pain in the past. So we praise you for that, Father. And we make these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.